Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. On March the 17th, 2022, the city of Mariupol was slowly collapsing under Russian bombardment. In the ruins of the drama theatre, there was a desperate search for survivors. Almost 2,000 miles away, in Paris, a Russian socialite was having a very different day. Our investigation actually starts with this, and I encourage everybody to watch it. We compared the date of key bombings of Ukraine, like the destruction of a theater in Mariupol, with where Svetlana was and what she was doing. As Ukrainian theater filled with people hiding from bombs used as a shelter as it was being destroyed by Russian bombs, She was in a very active conversation, deciding whether she needs to come pick up her diamond earrings like at 2 p.m. or at 2.30 p.m. in Paris. That's how it works. Maria Pevchik is a Russian investigative journalist now living in exile. She's been digging into the extraordinary wealth of Svetlana Maniovich, a Russian it girl and until very recently, the wife of the Deputy Minister of Defence, Timur Ivanov. Ivanov was sanctioned last October for his role in aiding the war in Ukraine. And yet, his partner enters EU territory almost monthly to enjoy some of the most luxurious shopping on the planet. How is that possible? If you were one of these individuals who found yourself on the sanctions list, then you probably had a playbook ready to go in order to deal with what you pretty much thought was inevitably going to happen to you one day. There is definitely a circumvention and evasion, and we should expect that, but we obviously need to hunt for that. As the G7 summit drew to a close in Japan yesterday, every member agreed to step up sanctions against Russia. But are the sanctions that are already in place working? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, diamonds and divorces. Are the oligarch sanctions working?
My name is Maria Pevchik. I am an investigator and I investigate Putin's corruption. And you do it at the moment with this anti-corruption foundation. Tell us a bit about that. How did that start off and how did you get involved with it? Right. So the Anti-Corruption Foundation was established about 11 or 12 years ago by the leading Russian opposition politician, Alexei Navalny. This is the guy I'm sure many people have heard of. Mm. Uh, He's the one who was poisoned by Novichok, investigated his his own poisoning, found who did it. And then he travelled back home to Russia and was arrested upon arrival. And he has been in prison ever since. It's been two, two years and a couple of months. But 12 years ago, he decided to organize a little NGO. Um, It's a weird mix of investigative journalism, legal work and political work. Hmm. I can't really think of an equivalent of that. I think this is a unique sort of concept that we came up with. But we find stories, we package them into text and videos like journalists would. But then we also have a team of lawyers who sue after we we publish the investigations, who look for every violation that there is of every law in Russia or outside Russia, and then just to complain, file reports, etc. And then the third part of the mix comes in, uh, it's the people who support us. They would go into the streets of, of Moscow, of other Russian cities and protest and demand answers and consequences. How did you get involved with the foundation? You'll be surprised. Um, I applied for a job. (laughs) It it was uh, back in 2011. And I was following um, Alexei Navalny, who used to have a very popular blog. And he would write about political things, which was really interesting and, and quite fun, I have to say. And I followed this blog for a long while. And then he posts a job um, opening and I thought, oh, wow, it's possible to work for you. I had no idea. (laughs) Um, So he is looking for a lawyer to study government procurement contracts. So being, I guess, overly confident back then, (laughs) I have sent my resume that didn't match the requirements at all. And and Navalny told me that I should still pop by, although I'm really not qualified to be a lawyer. Um, I should still pop by and introduce myself and and maybe we can do something else. So we met, it was um, early 2011. He has a tiny little office with uh, three people in there And while we were talking about politics and life in general, we realized that we share like a mutual dissatisfaction with what investigative journalism looked like back in the day. It was very self-censored. So we thought that it would be quite, it's quite a great idea uh, to stop complaining about other people doing their job (laughs) not well, but actually do it yourself, you know. We've been doing that for about 12 years. We published more than 200 investigations. Some of them are really huge and big. Some of them are small, but that's that, that's our job for a while now. You mentioned that this is all started by Alexei Navalny. Before we move on, just tell us, how is he at the moment? Well, I wish I had better news to deliver. He is in one of the most notorious Russian prisons and has been over two years. 
I mean, Russian prisons aren't great in the first place, but he has been transferred to a maximum security prison. And within that maximum security prison, he spends all of his time in a solitary confinement in a punishment cell. So he has a maximum security available in a maximum security prison. It's been over 160 days that he's spent in a solitary confinement. It's a tiny little cell, two and a half meters by three. You can barely make a couple of steps inside it. And um, they're torturing him. To, to phrase it simply, it is a form of psychological torture and physical as well. They are underfeeding him and that obviously has very clear consequences for his health, which wasn't great anyways after the Novichok poisoning. And it's horrifying to think that's happening now. But while he's stuck in prison, the organisation is doing an incredibly good job of still following up on these investigations and showing what's really happening inside the Russian administration. And today we're looking at one of your most recent investigations, which revolves around two people. Tell us a bit about these two characters. The characters are a very glamorous lady, someone that you can call maybe a socialite or an it's girl. Uh, her name is Svetlana Maniovich. That's the main character of our investigation. A woman who is um, known as a TV presenter, as a party organizer, someone who is constantly on the pages of Tatler magazine. And her husband, who unexpectedly isn't a celebrity or a pop star or TV presenter, but Timur Ivanov, the Deputy Minister of Defense of Russian Federation. So uh-huh. he's a government official directly responsible for the war in Ukraine right now. They, as a couple, live a very lavish lifestyle, very luxurious lifestyle, which, to be honest, was quite difficult not to notice because it was widely reported. They were frequent guests at every social event. The lifestyle that they pursue, the life that they have, doesn't really correspond with an income of a government official. Hmm. a sense of just how lavish this lifestyle is? Well, for example, they're very into holidays. And up until a couple of summers ago, they would go to the south of France every summer. Every time they would rent the most luxurious villa available there, they would rent a yacht and they pushed their holiday routine so far that they even managed to buy a holiday Rolls-Royce, as we call it. I didn't know that uh, this concept. Holiday Rolls-Royce? Yes, yes. What does that mean? People do that now. In order to avoid, you know, the hassle of renting a car every time. You know, we've all been there. You know, you go, you queue, you have to wait. Sometimes they mess up your booking and they give you a wrong car. They decided to buy a car, a Rolls-Royce, just to sit there in the south of France and wait for them to use it maybe like two, three weeks in the year. Oh, wow. For three weeks a year. Mm -hmm. That's extraordinary. But it does give you a sense of this is wealth beyond a normal ministerial salary, you'd assume. Tell us what you found when you started digging into them. You know, you saw this sort of excess wealth, you saw this very visible sign of showiness and you started digging into them. And you also sort of got hold of a stash of emails. Mm -hmm. Just tell us a bit about this. What did the emails show? And how did you get hold of them? We were leaked. Like a, it was like a dump of email, the incoming and outgoing mail of, of the wife. And it has a lot of business-related documents as well, like invoices for reconstruction of their new house or some purchases of antique furniture 
on the auctions. Normally, you don't get to see someone's life so close. Yeah. And this is where we would find email chains of correspondence with very famous jewelry brand in Paris. Svetlana would write to either the owner or manager of the store saying, I'm going to be in Paris in a couple of days. Can I have an appointment? And then they get an appointment. And then one of the world's most beautiful diamonds are being demonstrated to her and jewelry is being designed for her specifically. And when you see this correspondence as a chain, you can see that she emails them almost like every three weeks or every five wow. weeks. So that that gives you like a good, a good overview of a year in life of the wife of the deputy minister of defense and of course we found it shocking but also because it's happening during the war yeah just give us a sense of where this money would have been coming from you know you deal a lot with corruption within the russian system but how would he have been getting this money to to lavish on his wife Oh, uh, we know exactly how how he got this money and that's in the emails too oh um essentially Russian corruption sits on a foundation stone, which is called kickbacks. And Timur Ivanov, his area of responsibilities as a deputy minister is construction. So what we found in the emails was the fact that a company that has recently won a contract for rebuilding Mariupol. So they destroyed Mariupol first, the Russian yes. army. Now they're rebuilding it. And the company that built those new display houses in Mariupol also pays for Timur and Svetlana's house to be reconstructed. All of the invoices for their dacha outside of Moscow, all of those invoices are paid by the same company that restores Mariupol. And if, say, if they need to buy marble for their new house, the invoices are not addressed to Timur Svetlana, they are addressed to the company that is the biggest contractor of the Ministry of Defense at the moment. And that's a kickback. That is extraordinary. On the one hand, so much suffering. On the other, this very lavish lifestyle. And I suppose that's kind of the backdrop to this whole story. You know, you've, you've got an amazing stash there where you're basically able to catalogue all of this unexplained spending, all this unexplained wealth. Something isn't right. But it's happening at a time where her husband, who's a deputy minister, hasn't been that important until now, is suddenly key in the war effort. This also explains one of the other slightly peculiar parts of this story, which is potentially a fake divorce. Just explain that to us. How does that come about? I get asked about it quite often, and I used to be surprised about it because in the Russian world of corruption, this is the most typical and common move. Is it? People do that. So hang on, just, just explain. Why do people have a fake divorce? People do that. By Russian law, well, up until last year, you had to declare your annual income as a government official and the annual income of your spouse and children and if they are under 18. If you use your spouse as your asset holder, that kind of that becomes pointless because you have to you have to disclose her stuff anyways. And you can't really buy a French Riviera villa and put it in your wife's names because people will know. So what they used to do is that a corrupt government official who has either shares in companies that he shouldn't have or super expensive cars or super expensive properties, they would still keep it in, in their wife's name, but they would divorce so they don't have to disclose oh. it anymore. So you don't have to disclose an income of your partner or your civil partner, whatever you call it. No, it has to be a legal marriage for it to be disclosed. 
every case is different. And in case of Svetlana Manyovich and Timur Ivanov, the deputy minister of defense, we see that four or five months into the war, they file for divorce. They have appeared pretty happy on social networks before. We examine their assets and we see that the assets haven't been split. You know, normally when you divorce, you know, you say, okay, this flat goes to you, this flat goes to you, this house we sell and split the proceeds 50-50. None of that happened. Whatever they owned together, they they, they keep. Ah. Um, so it's it's a very tricky subject. Of course, I understand that, you know, life is complex and things happen. People divorce, people separate. So we have to be to keep up the very clear head when we evaluate this. We look for signs of legal divorce, you know, separating your financial assets, living separately, et cetera, et cetera. And we see none of that. So, of course, given that the sanctions for Timur Ivanov were imminent at this point. It's been oh. four months into the war. It was absolutely clear that he would be sanctioned. So they knew it's coming. They knew it's coming. And it came two months, it came 40 days after divorce. Ah, oh. Very timely. And she obviously has this lifestyle where she's zipping around France. Absolutely. Buying jewellery. That absolutely. would have been difficult. If- and sanctions against Timur uh, kicked in in October. According to the European legislation and American, I believe as well, you only co-sanction legally married couple. Right. Um, so if your husband is suddenly sanctioned, you're pretty much sanctioned yes, too. Yes, yes. You're very limited in what you can do. And in this case, I would imagine that the EU government officials looked into their family records and said, oh, he's single, he's not married, so uh, we've got nobody to sanction. And this is exactly what we're trying to draw everyone's attention to, that the loopholes in the current sanctions legislations, they're still there. And it's still relatively easy to find a workaround and keep your European lifestyle, keep your Courchevel trips and your Cannes summers while your husband is directly involved into the war. We asked Svetlana Maniovich and Timur Ivanov for a comment, but received no reply. Coming up, how do the current sanctions work and are there plans to close these loopholes? We ask the sanctions expert who governments turn to for advice. That's in just a moment. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm Tom Keating, and I'm the director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the think tank in London, RUSI. And Tom, we're speaking today here in our studios at London Bridge, but where have you just come from? Well, the direct answer is I've just come from the US Embassy. And one of the things that I have found, I've been nearly 10 years in the think tank business, is the opportunity we have to speak to policymakers and decision makers about the topics that matter of the day to give them ideas, tell them where they're going wrong, and generally try and inform what are very busy people uh, with many things to do and keep them on the right track. And what were you talking to them about? So, of course, the big topic that any Western government wants to talk about is sanctions in the context of Russia. It's been a very busy 15 or so months trying to put an economic net around the Kremlin and its war machine. But it's not going as well as we would like, or indeed as they would like. I don't have the power, they do. And so really what we're trying to do is to come up with ideas that can tighten the net, can stop the Kremlin getting everything else they need in order to continue prosecuting their illegal war in Ukraine. Well, before we get on to how you tighten the net now, how you sort of stop people getting through it. Just take us back to the start of the war in Ukraine. You suddenly had this unprecedented, to be honest, quite unexpected response from the international community who were more joined up than we we thought they would be in immediately starting to announce packages of sanctions. Just take us back to, to that moment. Tell us how it came together. Well, the, the really important word you just used is unexpected, because indeed it was. And actually, The reason it was unexpected is I'd like to go back to 2014. Armored Russian vehicles burst through the wall of Crimea's Belbek base today, firing warning shots and throwing sound grenades. The annexation of Crimea by Russia and its original invasion, infiltration, military infiltration into eastern Ukraine. The mostly unarmed Ukrainians were ordered not to fight back. Commanders trying to avoid bloodshed at all costs. That's the first time that the West had an opportunity to put sanctions on Russia and, frankly, fluffed it. Pressure from Russia is growing. Large groups of pro-Russia troops surrounding Ukrainian bases, ordering their forces off of them so they can occupy them. The international warning to Russia to end its invasion is being ignored. The sanctions were light. There was no backbone. There was no follow through. There was no implementation. They were frankly just tokenistic. And so 
if you had been sitting uh, in the Kremlin in late 2021, mm. listening to all the threats of sanctions, and there was a lot of rhetoric about sanctions, you'd have been forgiven for thinking, ah, you know, they said that last time. And I've actually, been here before. exactly. So when the sanctions did start to emerge from the 24th of February 2022, I think Putin will have been surprised whether he'd have cared or not is a different matter. But I think he would have been surprised. I was certainly surprised by the coordination between Brussels, 27 member states that, you know, are famously uncoordinated. Tonight, European leaders were fully aligned in condemning the atrocious and unprovoked attacks. Now we have to meet the moment. We will hold the Kremlin accountable. The package of massive and targeted sanctions European leaders approved tonight clearly demonstrates that. It will have maximum impact on the Russian economy and the political elite. And it is built of five pillars. The first Washington always wants to go harder and faster than everyone else. And the UK that hadn't really yet figured out what it was in the sanctions world post-Brexit. So a half-hearted and uncommitted 2014, 2015, 2016 was replaced by full-throated effort. So I think we can look back on that time and say the West followed through on what it promised, whether it promised too much that sanctions were going to achieve, i.e. stop Putin invading, that's another question we should discuss. And just remind us what those sanctions packages looked like, because they sort of seem to have a, a two-tier approach. They were partly trying to go after the Russian economy at large, and then also focusing in on particular individuals. Yeah, so the sanctions... There wasn't any obvious strategy. I often ask people in the Foreign Office here in, in London, so what was your theory of change? What were you trying to achieve? You know, mm. what, what, what are the metrics that you're going after? And that's a bit academic. But the point is, why did you choose to do what you, you did? And to start with, I think Western leaders went for the, the easy targets. So they went for freezing the assets of individuals. We'll come back to that. They went for cutting Russian banks out of the financial system, stopping them being able to raise capital, stopping them to uh, being able to move money, except for money related to energy payments, and freezing the assets of the Central Bank of Russia. That was the really unexpected mm. move. $300 billion frozen just like that. So that's the first sort of group. Then you have the group that were put in place to try and stop the Russian economy from earning money. So stopping exports, reducing oil and gas exports, just trying to shrink the amount of money that the Russian economy had to spend. And then the third was spend on what? Well, stop Russia from being able to import critical goods, microelectronics, microchips, that sort of stuff that they needed for their military. So those were sort of the three blocks that developed over time. And when it came to the you know targeting particular individuals, how did they decide who they wanted to target? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, the, from the outside, I mean, it's worth, again, just going back with a little bit of history again. Around the world, the capital of the UK is, to many people, known as London Grad. It's the home mm. of Russian money. Clean, dirty, doesn't matter. And indeed, money from other countries. And for years and years and years, decades indeed, people have been saying, look, you need to clean up your London Grad problem. And so when the opportunity to sanction these people came along. Mm. Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, who at the time was foreign secretary and therefore responsible for the sanctioning capability of the UK, 
did not miss an opportunity to in a way catch up with targeting people that they should have been after for many, many years. Now, it's important to remember that in sanctioning somebody, you are merely freezing their assets. You're not proving that the assets are the proceeds of corruption and then confiscating them. So, of course, in theory, one day, those oligarchs who've had their assets frozen will get them back and continue to can enjoy them in the UK or anywhere else. And was there no process started at the same time to try and work out if they were the profits from corruption, whether there was a case to be trying to claim some of these assets? Yeah, so there is a, there's a mantra that you hear people in, in my world and others chanting, which is we need to move from freeze to seize. How do we go from what is essentially an administrative tool, I freeze your assets because in my view, according to the law that was introduced in the UK, you are benefiting from or supporting the Russian government. We are going to freeze your assets. But it's not illegal to benefit from or support the Russian government. So therefore, I can't confiscate your assets. What I need to then do is to prove that they are the proceeds of corruption. Or I need to set up tripwires that mean that I can jump you from the administrative track to a legal track. So a tripwire might be having been sanctioned, you tried to evade sanctions. Okay, that's a criminal offence. Therefore, I am going to confiscate the assets that are connected with your evasion. So that's a big focus and a big discussion in Parliament at the moment as well. When it comes to individuals, I mean, I think the thing you have to remember is that people have been calling for measures to be taken against these individuals, particularly the high profile names. People have been calling for measures to be taken against them for the longest time. Mm. So if you were one of these individuals who found yourself on the sanctions list in February, March, April 2022, then you probably had a playbook ready to go in order to deal with what you pretty much thought was inevitably going to happen to you one day. So this is where you, know, you, you see that the children of oligarchs have massive property portfolios, for example, or you see people seemingly getting divorced and the assets being in the divorced wife's name, but you know, are they really divorced? Mm. So there are all these examples where you, know, you're, you basically are preparing yourself for the day when this occurs. So there is definitely a circumvention and evasion, and we should expect that, but we obviously need to hunt for that. And I think it's important to remember that up until February 2022, with the exception of the United States, really, Western countries had never properly thought about sanctions. Sanctions had always been sort of on a country far away or on warlords in places that you'd never go and visit. There wasn't that sort of intersection with our society in the way that there is between sanctions on Russia and sanctions on the UK or Europe. So foreign affairs ministries, treasuries, enforcement agencies have had to learn a huge amount over the last 12 to 15 months and really you know, run to stand still. Are we catching up now? Are, are people working out how, how oligarchs are getting around sanctions and are people going after those loopholes? I think we are catching up. I mean, there, for example, in the UK is this uh, thing called the K-cell, the kleptocracy cell, which you know is really charged with precisely looking for this kind of activity. I think the challenge we're going to face is maintaining our pressure, maintaining our pace, because you know, inevitably, the war in Ukraine is tragic and will remain tragic, but it drops down the agenda, unfortunately, the news agenda. So I think, you know, 
we will have to continue to stay the course. And a really important point to make with sanctions is, and this I think was a failing of the rhetoric of political leaders back at the end of 21, beginning of 22, is they gave the impression that sanctions were some kind of light switch. You flick the sanctions light mm. switch and everything changes. And as we know, that's not the case. Sanctions are a long-term tool used with other foreign policy tools. You need to stay the course. So we mustn't take our eye off the ball, because if we do, we'll go back to the kind of post-2014 era and we'll yeah. let down the Ukrainian people. Western governments are holding firm on sanctions and will hopefully update the rules when they're shown these loopholes. But it takes extraordinary courage from people like Maria Pevchik, who are risking their lives every day to expose where sanctions law is failing. Maria, for you, how hard is it to do these investigations? You know, taking on the sort of role that you're you're playing does involve a risk. I think that's we have been living under a permanent level of risk for a long while now. I don't think I have a colleague who like hasn't spent a couple of weeks in prison or doesn't have a criminal case or is not labeled foreign agents or something. I, for example, have, I don't know, maybe two or three criminal cases really? against me and around my colleagues, uh, I'm considered rather uncool and a bit lame <laughs> because all of them have like 11 or 12 or 13. <laughs> um, we are on the list of extremist organizations and terrorist lists. Wow. For, as investigative journalists, yes, yes, you're classed as yes, terrorists. Yes. So you, you can open that list and you will see ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, <laughs> you know, and then it goes like this. It's insane, but that, that that's the life that we live. Is there a level of risk involved? Yes. Can they potentially do something to us even after we had to leave Russia and live abroad? Of course. The ex-president of Russia, the deputy head of the Security Council, Dmitry Medvedev, the guy who was once the president of Russia, yeah. very briefly for four years, he writes on Telegram that we, like naming us by name, should be murdered like rabid dogs. And, you know, pe people in the UK would, would know as well that they can get people here. There was Salisbury poisoning yeah. where the same, very same Novichok was used so keeping in mind those risks, I don't think we can stop doing what we're doing. I am convinced that the Russian government, Putin personally, has done so much harm to us because he wants us to stop working. And Putin has imprisoned Navalny and my other colleagues because he wants us to stop working. He wants us gone. And I am not going to give that gift to Vladimir Putin. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, investigator for the Anti-Corruption Foundation, Maria Pevchik, and director for the Centre of Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI, Tom Keating. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. 
If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.